Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hello and welcome to episode number 166 of The Draft Analyst, presented by the Believe Sports Podcast Network. Do you believe? This is Chris Tripodi, and I'm joined by Tony Pauline, as always. And ladies and gentlemen, we've made it. It's officially conference championship week, a week that appeared to be in danger over the summer. And while obviously the season hasn't come without its share of hiccups, here we are. That being said, Washington has been replaced by Oregon in the Pac-12 title game due to the Huskies' COVID-19 issues, and numerous teams have already eliminated themselves from bowl consideration, so we're still far from a place of any sort of normalcy. But we do get conference championship week, and it's going to have some big-time college football playoff implications, particularly in the ACC and the SEC. Which is kind of funny, especially the SEC, since a week ago, if you listened to this podcast, you you heard me whine about how Unfair, I thought it was, that the Big Ten was removing their six-game requirement in order to get Ohio State into the Big Ten title game to give them entree to, or very likely entree to the Final Four. And I waxed poetic about uh, Florida's uh, really justification or potential justification for being in the college football playoffs. And what does Florida do? They go out and they, they pull uh, they pull a bad one. I guess I guess I can say if they pull a boner against the LSU and lose a game that everyone thought that they were going to win, a game that Chris and I will talk about a little later on. Absolutely. And we'll get to that and more in this week's show in just a minute. But first, a word from our sponsor. The NFL season, in addition to the college football season, is now officially in full swing and winding down. And while you may not be at the game this year, unfortunately, you can still be in on the action at Bet Online. Two Alabama stars currently lead the Heisman odds with Kyle Trask dropping off after Florida's loss, Devontae Smith skyrocketing up after last week. Mac Jones, though, still the favorite. Usually teammates tend to steal votes from each other and someone else wins as a result. But now it's looking like these two are actually going to compete. And that's what exactly what Kyle Trask did last week with that uh, performance where he finally looked human was he ju- he basically dropped out of the conversation. From game spreads and totals to team, player, and coaching props, Bet Online gives you more options to wager than any place online. And there's always the online casino as well. It never closes. So head to betonline.ag today and take advantage of all the great sign-up bonuses. Again, that's betonline.ag and sign up today. Bet Online, your online sportsbook experts. No on the record from us this week. Instead, we'll discuss our hometown Jets as we are wont to do on this podcast and their 0-13 record. In addition to head coach Adam Gase, Gase said Wednesday that he knows that he has let owner Christopher Johnson down. Even said, and I quote, he deserves better, end quote, in reference to Johnson. So it seems at this point that Gase knows his fate of being a retread free agent coach for the second time in two years Now, Gase usually isn't one to say something like this. He's not really an introspective or, uh, you know, humble type of person. Tony, is it possible that maybe he has been humbled by just this devastating season all around? You know, I think that Adam Gase saw the writing on the wall weeks ago, if not months ago, and he's just basically 
coming to reality if with it publicly now or basically got to the point where he could talk about it publicly now. His comments today come off the heels of what he said a week ago where his biggest regret was he was unable to develop Sam Darnold. In fact, Darnold has really gone, gone in reverse since his rookie season. Uh, I think the thing here is, is the owner or the acting CEO, Chris Johnson, is the one who owes Jet fans an apology. Chris Johnson is the one who let Jet fans down because, you know, anyone who was in the league or anyone who's close to the league knew that it was going to be an uphill battle for Adam Gase, especially the way he left Miami. And Adam Gase was the Jets' third choice for head coach. The New York Jets should be a desirable spot for people to, to want to come and coach. And again, you know, just to reiterate history, uh, they wanted Matt Rule. Matt Rule wouldn't come unless they let him, uh, unless he was allowed to pick his own assistant coaches. That never happened. They kicked the tires on Mike McCarthy, and a lot of Jet fans were upset that they did not select McCarthy as their head coach. Obviously, that's not worked out well in Dallas yet. And they were running out of bodies, so they chose Adam Gase, who blew Christopher Johnson away. And you had that whole situation with Mike McCagnan. And I'll reiterate what I said when people were freaking out because they fired McCagnan after he hired the coach, after free agency, after the draft. It was those things, the hiring of the coach, where the Jets seemingly couldn't get anybody. And they were running out of war bodies, which is why they selected Adam Gase. Then you had the whole Anthony Barr situation. Uh, and everything else that led to the firing of Mike McCagnon. So, uh, you know, I don't know why this surprises anyone, especially when you see where Adam Gates was when he was hired by the New York Jets and what people in Miami were saying about him. Yeah, I mean, the only real surprise here is that Adam Gates is actually like kind of looking in the mirror and maybe realizing that he's just not cut out to be an NFL head coach. I mean, that that to me is the surprising thing. I assumed he was just going to go down with the ship um, and just kind of keep his his typical shtick up and and not really ever have like an introspective moment or a moment of humility. And, and that's kind of what we're seeing here, which is is pretty shocking considering, you know, all the things you said. And, and you mentioned, you know, him leaving Miami. I mean, all the players pretty much rejoiced when he was gone out of Miami. And, you know, I, I would not be surprised if there's a similar sentiment within the Jets organization, at least among the players who are going to stick around in the future, which, you know, <laughs> I don't know how many uh, the guys currently playing on the field right now end up, you know, staying in green in the future. But, you know, these guys have to be probably pretty happy, despite what someone like Sam Darnold might say in the media, which is just what he has to say to, you know, to, to keep face. He's not going to throw his coach under the bus. But I mean, secretly, these guys are definitely going to be rejoicing once he's gone. And really, you know, that is the stain, if you will, of Adam Gates. That, that is how awful this whole his whole tenure has been. I, I mean, Sam Darnold, who Jet fans rejoiced when they selected him in 2018, who had a real good rookie year, now it looks like you're going to be starting all over again because Sam Darnold, who probably should have been your franchise quarterback, is uh, looks like he's going to be thrown to the trash heap because he's shown little of anything the past two years. I think the most damning thing for Adam Gase, forget about the record, is the couple of weeks that Joe Flacco was the starting quarterback for the New York Jets and lined up on their center. That's where the Jets' offense was the most efficient this year. They scored with more regularity. They scored more points. They moved the ball more efficiently with a guy, a free agent guy, who's at the end of his rope, who they signed right before the season started to be a backup, was better than the player that they selected three years ago who was supposed to be their franchise quarterback. 
Yeah, and they were pretty entertaining when Flacco was uh, the quarterback. I mean, you know, he's taking shots downfield. They do have some receivers that can get deep. Then Darnold comes back, and all of a sudden, Adam Gase cannot figure out how to get the downfield passing game going. I mean, as you said, Darnold was good as a rookie. He has taken dozens of steps back under Gase. You know, we can only imagine what would have happened if someone like Matt Rule was hired and brought in a staff. I mean, look what is going on in Carolina. Obviously, Joe Brady wasn't a guy that was going to be available Um necessarily to the jets but you know carolina is a team that is kind of outplaying their talent on offense you know teddy bridgewater's looked pretty good and bridgewater probably doesn't have the same level of natural talent that sam darnold does so it's just you know a huge shame uh with this whole situation and i i just you know it's it's time to move on and i think even adam gase realizes that yeah teddy bridgewater does have robbie anderson which was a, a major mistake uh on the behalf of joe douglas and, and you know even if you want to say he didn't, he didn't have much talent around him. The offensive line has been a mess, which is true. The receiver core has constantly been in flux, which is also true. It's just the decision-making. The decision-making is getting worse for Sam Darnold, constantly putting the ball up for grabs, just doesn't see the field. I mean, as a rookie, he just showed tremendous resiliency. He'd make a bad play, make throw an interception, and he'd come back and, and he would really rebound and be very productive. <clears throat> Excuse me. You haven't seen any of that from Sam Darnold the past two years. Now, speaking of making decisions, obviously the Jets have one to make depending what happens at the end of their season. But another guy who has decisions to make, if you would listen to anybody who wants to tell you, is Trevor Lawrence. I mean, the Jets obviously first and foremost need to keep losing. Any win is going to bump them behind the Jaguars in the draft unless Jacksonville ends up winning another game. Obviously, we've discussed Lawrence and the Jets on the show a lot already, but an article came out on ESPN Wednesday with quotes from five agents and three GMs, anonymous quotes, of course, about the possibility that Trevor Lawrence could pull an Eli Manning and force the Jets to trade him if they take him number one. And this assumes that he doesn't return to school to avoid the franchise altogether. To kind of summarize everything, they think, the, and they being these agents and GMs, that Trevor Lawrence has all the leverage in the world if he wants to use it, but they don't know if he would. And the one example that caught my eye that they used was that because Jets ownership does not like embarrassing PR, they could claim, and this is if Lawrence tells them privately that he's not going to play for them, uh, they could claim that they're still committed to Sam Darnold, who has you know regressed horribly under Adam Gase. Um, you know, we, and we've discussed this about the Jets and their ownership on the show before, as far as you know, they might rather just avoid the embarrassment of the situation and, and maybe Lawrence and his camp will, you know, let them know privately rather than making it public because that would just be a complete disaster for the team. Um, you know, I do think there are some positives for the jets. You know, Joe Douglas is well-respected around the league so far. His first two 2020 draft picks of Makai Becton and Denzel Mims look like smashes and they're going to get a new head coach. So maybe Lawrence's camp says, you know what, we have leverage here. Maybe we want some say in the coaching decision if they want to do that, who really knows how this all kind of comes together. But despite the franchise's recent history, which has certainly been poor, it does look like there is that potential to just press the reset button at quarterback and head coach. They already have a GM in place who looks like he has a good eye for talent to maybe build around Trevor Lawrence. So it's possible that, you know, despite what everyone is saying, maybe, and I don't know if Lawrence and his eventual camp is going to view things this way, Maybe the situation isn't quite as dire as everyone wants to make it seem, but I don't know. Am I just looking through some rose-colored glasses there, Tony? Well, I think you're forgetting one large part of the equation. That reset button has to be hit 
with the owners as well, because it's the ownership, specifically in recent years, Chris Johnson, that's the major problem. He's in there making decisions that he's not qualified to. I actually spoke with one of the agents who was quoted uh, in that article, who basically told me that if, you know, if he's Trevor Lawrence, there's no way he's coming to the Jets. He's telling trade, trade because I'm not coming to you. And he went on to say the Jets could get four first rounders uh, for a team that wants to move up for Trevor Lawrence. Not that the Jets are really going to get four first rounders, but that just tells you what Trevor Lawrence uh, is thought of in scouting circles. That article that you, uh, you referenced, it's damning in the sense that that's what a lot of people who are involved in the league think of the New York Jets, specifically ownership. I, I mean, you've got agents who are saying, there's no way I would let my guy play there. And you've got GMs who are basically reiterating the same fact. Now, everyone has their own agenda. And I, I think uh, with, a, uh, some, uh, with an agent, they're going to be looking out for their players. I, I don't know that uh, Lawrence has signed with an agent yet, now, or, or he's even close to signing with an agent. So I don't know that he has a quote-unquote team. But it kind of tells you what the rest of the league, or at least some of the league, as well as the agents who teams have to deal with, think of the, uh, think of the Jets as an organization, primarily – the hierarchy, because when I was speaking with this agent yesterday, who's New York based, who is basically partial to the Jets, who I've known for 20 years, said, you know, listen, it all starts at the top and the top is with ownership. So I agree with what you're saying, but ownership's got to basically say, listen, we're hands off. You know, we're going to let Joe Douglas run the team. We're going to let a football guy run the team. We're going to let a strong-willed head coach that we bring in run the team, and we're not going to be making decisions. I don't know that that's going to happen, though. I do think, in the end, the article is something where it was more of a, a space filler, where it's a, what could happen? There's really no part of me that believes Trevor Lawrence is going to tell the Jets, you know, I don't want to play in New York. I don't want to play for the Jets. I mean, Trevor Lawrence is a smart guy. He's a terrific quarterback. He's an outstanding quarterback prospect. Some people say he's a little bit off, but I think that's because he's just so focused on football. And Trevor Lawrence knows what coming to, coming to the New York Jets and turning them into a winner would be, as he did uh, for the Clemson Tigers. So uh, I don't think that's going to come to fruition. But as far as I'm concerned, the most damning part of that article is what a good part of the league thinks of the New York Jets and how they're being run. Yeah, and frankly, the only way that that's going to change is if they get themselves in a situation where, as you said, ownership kind of takes a step back and says, you know what? Okay, people are telling us that we need to do this. And in order to draft this prospect that, you know, even a hands-on ownership would know that Trevor Lawrence is the guy that you want. So if all you need to do is take a step back and you're told that by the prospect and his eventual camp themselves that, you know what, just we need to make sure that the infrastructure here is in place. We like the general manager. Um, you know, we think he can do some things here with the roster and build it up from the ground up because right now it needs to be built from the absolute ground up. Um, you know, maybe they feel like, you know, all that leverage that is discussed in this article, maybe they feel like they have enough leverage where they can just say, you know what, these are our rules. 
And if you're not interested in them, if you want to continue to meddle, if you want to continue to take that level of hands-on approach, then you know we're going to demand a trade. We may do it publicly to embarrass you. We may do it privately if you're you know willing to do these things X Y Z whatever it is. But you know, in 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 the end, I mean, Trevor Lawrence has he can play any card he wants here. He has all the leverage. He has all the power, and I think he knows it. Well, I mean, he does, but he doesn't. If the Jets are going to draft him, the Jets are going to draft him. Uh, he doesn't want. He's not going to go on to go back to school for uh, Clemson for another year and, and lose out on a year of earning power or a year, uh, an early year of earning power. So, I don't know that he's got all the cards. Uh, you know, he could say to the Jets, "Don't draft me." If the Jets draft him, he's got to sit out a year. He's not going to get paid. I, I don't think that benefits anybody. Um, I will tell you this: when I spoke with the agent friend yesterday. He said, let's see what happens when Woody Johnson comes back and, and what Woody Johnson does as far as taking control of the team. Uh, because while when Woody left, the situation was bad and it went from bad to worse under Christopher Johnson. Fact is this, and I've said this before, the Jets had a good degree of success when Woody Johnson was in charge. Back-to-back AFC title games, a team that was a half a yard away from going to the Super Bowl, it fell off the cliff and it fell off the cl- cliff quickly in large part because Mike Tannenbaum built that team or built those teams that went to the AFC championship by trading away draft picks to get players like Santonio Holmes and Antonio Cromartie by trading away draft picks to move up to get the Mark Sanchez's. So there wasn't a lot of, you know, depth there to fall back on because those picks were used to get the players that helped them get to the AFC title game. I, I think the hope that I heard from people I spoke with, including one of the agents that was quoted, is Woody Johnson comes back, he takes reins. Maybe Woody understands that he and his brother and his family got to step back and let someone else run the organization. Basically, let someone else not run the organization, but run the football side of things and get the hell out of being involved. Now, on to what we saw in week 15 on the college football field. And we're going to start. Near the top here, we kind of teased it earlier. Number six, Florida, sat star tight end Kyle Pitts after he warmed up. The trainers said he was a bit beat up, but it seems like they mostly just rested him to get ready to face Alabama. If they felt like this was a must-win game or if they felt like they needed this game or that they would not just wipe the floor with LSU without Pitts, he would have played. They wanted him to get ready for the SEC title game. Obviously, that backfired. The Gators lost to a previously 3-5 and five LSU team, 37-34. They lost on a 57-yard field goal, which is crazy in, in college. That just does not happen. Um, you know, in addition to that, we lost a key matchup in the game because we couldn't see LSU linebackers Jabril Cox and Damone Clark try to cover pits. What we did see is Cox really play what I thought was an outstanding game. He had just six tackles, one of them for loss, but three quarterback hurries. He was constantly getting pressure on Kyle Trask. Two pass breakups, and he looked apart as well. Showed good fundamentals in coverage. Ran with tight ends, not named Kyle Pitts, obviously, down the field. Skied in the air for one pass breakup where he really competed well at the catch point. Looked like a receiver trying to go up and get the ball. Um, Did a nice job getting extended on blocks, keeping his head up, making plays in the run game as well. Clark, not quite as impressive in coverage. Did have nine tackles, one of them for loss, but certainly did not make the impact on this game that Cox did. Uh, For Kyle Trask, on the other side of things, without Pitts here, under three touchdowns for the first time all year, and the first time all year with multiple interceptions. Another big game, though, from Kadarius Toney, nine catches for 182 yards and a touchdown, just explosive in all facets of the game. Really, this game 
even though Florida lost and it was silly of them to do what they did with Pitts in hindsight, super entertaining game overall. Just imagine what it could have been if Pitts played. Well, I think by not playing, Pitts actually enhanced his draft stock because you saw what he meant to that offense. I mean, no one really expected LSU to be in that game. And to their credit, they were in that game early. They had, they had that gold line stance early. But I, I think you saw what Pitts means to the Florida offense, what he meant to Kyle Trask. The decision to hold him out is going to loom large uh, if Florida does not get into the semifinals. And right now it looks like they're not going to get into the semifinals unless they somehow beat Alabama. So I think by not playing, the end result is really going to help Kyle Pitts draft stock because you saw what he meant to that entire team, uh, as well as Kyle Trask. Uh, I agree with you. I thought Jabril Cox probably played his best game of the year uh, since transferring to LSU. He's an athletic guy. He's more of a space uh, off the ball, as they call him, linebacker, more of your traditional 4-3 weak side guy, a three-down linebacker, not someone that's going to put up big sack numbers, which everyone loves today, but it's someone who does all the little things well. Uh, And I agree with you. It was an entertaining game. You say the game was won on a 57-yard field goal. Florida fans will say the game was lost by a missed field goal. What was that at the end there? 47 yards or something uh, like that by the, the kicker who never misses field goals. It was, it was entertaining and it was surprising at the same time. Now, what everyone thought was going to be the best matchup of the week turned into a real laugher. UNC went into Miami, rolled the Hurricanes 62-26. We wanted to see coming in, Diami Brown and Daz Newsom go up against Bubba Bolden and the Miami secondary. But in this game, Sam Howell threw just 19 passes because the Heels racked up an insane 556 rushing yards. Javante Williams and Michael Carter Jr. combined for more rushing yards than any pair of teammates ever. And this is a record that was just reset a couple weeks ago by Jarrett Patterson and Kevin Marks Jr. at Buffalo, mostly Patterson, obviously. We'll discuss Brown, Newsom, and Boldham in a second, but these running backs really deserve some publicity. They've already gotten a ton of it after this game. Michael Carter, Tony, was one of your risers this week over at Pro Football Network. He's the smaller of the two backs, but great speed and acceleration. The quickness to just embarrass defenders in the open field, which he did a couple times, although really Miami's tackling was also very embarrassing. Williams is the guy of the duo with feature back size, and he plays to it, doesn't go down on first contact, always delivering the hit to defenders instead of the other way around. He also has good burst and solid straight line speed, though. His lateral agility concerns me a little bit. I do think he's more of a downhill back, but he did show some ability to adjust to errant passes as well as a receiver. Both of these guys have some warts in their games that will probably keep them out of the early rounds, but those warts not on display at all Saturday with both of them averaging over 10 yards per carry. Yeah, they're both last day picks. I think Carter's more of a situational type of uh, guy. I think uh, Williams could potentially be a feature runner. If you're not going to ask him to uh, play in a zone type system where you're running him around the, around the outside to the perimeter. Uh, I thought Diami Brown, the, the dynamic receiver had a terrific game and the safety that we talked about, or we were keen on Bubba Bolden. He was terrible. And I'm told that Bubba Bolden's going to uh, enter the draft. I mean, he basically looked like a straight line downhill safety. Didn't show much in the way of lateral range show almost nothing in the way of lateral speed. As you mentioned, I mean, he was responsible for some of those tackles that were broken, uh, which allowed Carter and Javante Williams to pick up yardage after initial contact. I said that Kyle Pitts uh, watched his draft stock rise by sitting on the sidelines because you saw what he meant to that Florida offense. 
I, I think Bubba Bolden, his draft stock dropped because you saw limitations in his game. And even where he was supposed to be strongest or everyone thought he was strongest against the run, really, really struggled in that area as well. Yeah, I mean, if you just look at the stat sheet, he had 13 tackles, which you're like, okay, wow, great. But again, you mentioned the missed tackles and also in coverage, he was over Newsom in the slot a couple of times. And again, if you knew that and you saw that Daz Newsom had just two catches and 15 yards, you would think, oh, maybe Bubba Bolden did a pretty good job. But Newsom got him inside. He got him outside. He just didn't necessarily make big plays off of that. But, you know, he couldn't really cover Newsom. He couldn't really do too much from a single high alignment. You know, Brown got deep. You know, he'd be late to the sidelines. He'd get sucked up by run action. I mean, just not a promising game for Bolden in terms of his ability to be any level of a complete safety. I mean, he did run down Diami Brown on one play to stop a touchdown. But again, that's that straight line-ish type of play you're talking about. Yeah, you can run in a straight line, but as a safety, you need to be going left and right. You need to be able to get out to the flanks. Uh, Bolden just didn't really show the ability to do that. Um, but Brown in this one was pretty impressive. 167 of 200. 23 passing yards from Sam Howell went to Brown on four catches really has the speed to burn, which we knew coming in long arms really helps him haul in passes down the field. It's going to help him at the catch point too. It does a nice job, not letting the ball get into his body and had several long catches here. So I was very impressed by Brown Newsom really didn't get too much work. I mean, when you only throw 19 passes, it's not really enough room for two wide receivers in addition to them throwing to the running backs as well. You know, but as you said, you know, just not a strong game from Bolden, but a good game from Brown. Yeah, I think, uh, first of all, Brown's a guy who I'm told is going to enter the draft. He's a second-day selection. I think the faster he runs, the earlier he's going to be selected in the, in the 2021 draft. Uh, I had him as a third-rounder coming into the season. I think maybe he's slightly higher. Newsom didn't have great stats against Miami, but he's played well all year, and he's absolutely cemented himself as a later-round pick. Listen, I'm tearing Bubba Bolden down. It doesn't mean he's not going to be a good player at the next level, but what we saw Saturday just means he's not going to be a high draft pick and he's got some limitations and he's more of a scheme specific type of safety. Now our last week 15 review takes us into the trenches in the big 10 where Illinois left tackle Vidarian Lowe and Northwestern defensive end Ernest Brown battled many times in Northwestern's blowout win Brown four tackles, one for loss fared well overall did well against Lowe as well. He's quick off the line of scrimmage, got some push on Lowe when he was able to stay low out of his stance to win the leverage battle. Very active overall, tough to square up. He's quick. He's always trying to move off blocks, showed some speed in pursuit as well, and the ability to stack and shed, kept his eyes in the backfield to make sure he was able to make plays. So I thought it was a strong game from Brown. I was impressed by him. And while Lowe did struggle at times against Brown, occasionally had his moments where he was bending at the waist, some choppy footwork, trying to get out to the edge, Besides those inconsistencies, though, showed a solid anchor, some strong hands to control opponents. He's got the ability to get to the second level as well. He's always keeping his feet moving. He can finish blocks. He ended up putting defenders on the ground a couple of times. So you can see the raw tools when it comes to low, but he does need some development, which really hasn't come over the past couple seasons under Lovey Smith. Which is why Lovey Smith is now looking for a new job as he was fired, uh, I believe, what, Monday or Tuesday from the Illinois spot, the head coaching job. Uh, Lowe looked really good to me on that first drive, which was basically the only time during the game that uh, Illinois was able to push the Northwestern defense down the field. Like you said, he's strong. He's got an NFL guards build. He's got long arms and big hands. As we said before, he's out of place at left tackle. 
I don't think he's going to be right tackle, but I think he could be a very good guard at the next level. Someone who is a backup early in his career and could eventually develop into this, into a starter at that spot. He's been a good player at Illinois for three years. He just has some athletic and agility limitations. Uh, and, you know, you mentioned, uh, you know, the spots where you look good. And, and as I said, that first drive, he looked really good. As far as Ernest Brown's concerned, listen, if he's able to stay healthy, he's going to develop his game. He's a, he's a sensational athlete who's going to be a day three pick. He could go mid day three. He's got size. He's got growth potential. He's got speed. He makes plays moving in every direction of the field. He can also make plays in space. It's just staying healthy, getting stronger at the point and developing his game. Terrific upside and a terrific developmental prospect. Now with it being a conference championship weekend, we're going to do some quick hitters on every conference's game rather than our normal previews. We'll go alphabetically starting with the American athletic conference where Cincinnati and Tulsa both ran the table in conference play at six and oh, since he's eight, no overall Tulsa six and one only loss came in their opener. Their only non-conference game against Oklahoma state, a good team in their own right. Now we've discussed Tulsa linebacker Zayvon Collins as a sneaky first round guy as a linebacker with good size and athleticism and a knack to making big plays. But center Gerard Wheeler is a good prospect as well. Powerful pivot who excels at the line. Wheeler, probably not going to see much of Cincinnati defensive end Majai Sanders, who took a step forward this season with eight and a half tackles for loss and five sacks. An athletic defensive end with growth potential. And of course, Bearcats quarterback Desmond Ritter, 27 total touchdowns in eight games, 16 passing and 11 rushing, 8.5 yards per pass attempt, and completing over 66% of his passes. So a solid step forward for Ritter this season. You wonder if Tulsa may try to use Collins to actually spy Ritter at times and maybe force him to win from the pocket. This game is all about juniors when you're looking at it from an NFL scouting perspective. Zayvon Collins is going to enter the draft. He's going to be a mid-first round pick. He continues to play better and better and continues to improve his game. He's got the size. We've seen the athleticism. He's a forceful guy. He's also a smart guy. I believe he's a pre-med major at Tulsa. So he's got the complete package, and he really is a three-down defender. Needs to polish uh, certain areas of his game. He's entering the draft. He's going to go early. <clears throat> Cincinnati's got three juniors. You mentioned Desmond Ritter. You mentioned MyJ Sanders, the third junior is their left tackle, James Hudson. Right now, all these guys are day three picks. Maybe Ritter is an early third-round choice. But all of these guys, Desmond Ritter, James Hudson, Majay Sanders, would benefit from going back from another, for another year at Cincinnati. If they want to, be, want to cement themselves as day two picks, go back to Cincinnati for their senior season, the only holdup is <clears throat> what happens with Luke Fickle. Is Luke Fickle back at Cincinnati uh, to coach the 2021 team? Because this Cincinnati-Tulsa game, they tried to play this game twice before, but it was both times it was postponed because of COVID. Where it's going to be a real good game. And when you watch the Cincinnati film, they just play 110% every single snap. They don't have great talent. They've got solid talent that plays really good football because of the head coach. And I think Desmond Ritter, Hudson, and Sanders – fits that mold of good players who could be even better if they go back for their senior season. Now the top two defenses in the ACC face off when Clemson plays Notre Dame, in addition to defense, Clemson obviously has Trevor Lawrence, Travis Etienne, and Omari Rogers on offense and some decent defensive prospects as well. Notre Dame has a late round type of guy in Ian book, 
under center, a couple solid prospects on the offensive line in Liam Eichenberg and Robert Hainsey at tackle. We previously discussed them as well. The Irish also have a talented linebacker in Jeremiah Owosu-Karamoa, certainly more than just the guys I mentioned in terms of draftable prospects on the field in this one. Tony, what are you watching for? Well, obviously, I think uh, Trevor Lawrence sort of has an ax to grind, not against Notre Dame, but the fact that he wasn't in that first Notre Dame game and which Clemson lost in, what was it, double or triple overtime? They, they lost, even though the backup quarterback actually played very well. Obviously, you want to watch the Notre Dame linebacker, whose name I'm not even going to try to pronounce. Give it to me. Jeremiah Owosu-Karamoa? <laughs> exactly. Uh, against Travis Atn. Atn has really improved his draft stock. I think he, like Najee Harris of Alabama, they are first-round prospects who play a day-two position. But ATN has really filled the void for the lack of true uh, skill players, or, or I should say the loss of skill players, the loss of uh, T. Higgins uh, and, and Justin Ross. He's really stepped up his game. Obviously, you know, Notre Dame has got a real good defense. It'll be interesting to see what Trevor Lawrence does. We highlighted, we spoke about Trevor Lawrence against the Pitt defense, which was really good, good pass rushers, good secondary, and he just picked them apart. Let's see what happens here against Notre Dame because, like I said, he wants to make up for that game that he, uh, he lost out on uh, or, or was unable to play. Let me say something about the Notre Dame tackle, Eichenberg. He gets a lot of love in certain areas of the scouting community. I just don't see it. I mean, I think he's a college left tackle. It's going to have to move to the right side. Uh, so there were some people falling over themselves uh, for Eichenberg, early top 42 selection. I think he's a good player, but I, I think he's more of a, uh, a third round type guy. Now moving to the Big Ten, which got Ohio State into its title game, as we discussed on last week's show. Ernest Brown, who we discussed earlier today, may get to see some Thayer Munford in this game, which would be an interesting matchup. Linebackers Patty Fisher and Blake Gallagher will see some of Ohio State's interior offensive line, including guard Wyatt Davis and center Josh Myers. Cornerback Greg Newsom will be challenged against Chris Olave and Garrett Wilson, and of course, Justin Fields under center. As you can kind of see by their notable prospects, the Wildcats are keyed by their defense, a Big Ten best 14.6 points per game. Northwestern does like to run the ball on the offensive side, so watch out for linebackers Tuff Borland and Pete Werner as keys for Ohio State to kind of neutralize that Northwestern running game. Going to be very tough for Northwestern to move the ball against Ohio State. I am looking forward to that Greg Newsom against Justin Fields, Chris Olave. Fields is going to enter the draft. Olave is going to enter the draft. I'm hearing there's a very good chance that Greg Newsom also enters the draft. I have him as a third-round selection right now. The thing with Greg Newsom is, It'll depend on how fast he runs. It's sort of a Cameron Bynum situation. Cameron Bynum, the cornerback from Cal that we spoke about. Newsom's physical. He's got real good ball skills. Makes plays with his back to the ball. Comes up with uh, big pass deflections or interceptions in opportune uh, times of the game as he did against Wisconsin. The question is, and we'll have to wait and see, can he stay downfield with Chris Olave, who's got legitimate deep speed? Now, looking at the MAC title game, we mentioned Jarrett Patterson quickly earlier in the show. Probably won't run for 409 yards in this game against a decent Ball State defense, which has linebacker Christian Albright doing more as a pass rusher this season, but also a good player in pursuit. And he's going to have to be to slow down Patterson with the rest of his teammates and the nation's number one rush offense in terms of yards per game. Obviously, a uh, 500-yard game is going to really boost those stats. Not a prospect-laden matchup, though, by any means, Tony. Anything else to watch for? 
Well, you want to watch the Buffalo offensive line, specifically uh, their left tackle, Coyote Owasika, who's going to move to guard. He's highly graded by some scouts. I mean, some scouts have him as a day two pick. Ivan Moore is a day three selection, six foot three, 300 pounds. Not really a zone blocking guy, but a tough kind of punch in your face type of offensive lineman who will be drafted, who does have starting potential at the next level. It's just a matter of where he starts. And the other offensive lineman from Buffalo to watch that helps open those big holes that uh, Jarrett Patterson runs through is Ray Thomas Ishman, who's played at times this year. He's played well this year, uh, actually transferred over from uh, UMass. And in 2019, he was considered a draftable prospect uh, at UMass, but he rarely saw the field. He took the graduate transfer out to Buffalo. Turned out to be a real good decision for him. They also have a, a solid uh, receiver at uh, Buffalo, Antonio Nunn. Guy's got decent speed, got good pass catching hands. Uh, Ball State's got a real good cornerback in uh, Amechi Zumadima, who is a third year junior. I grade him as a six round pick. They also have another, another senior in Antonio Phillips, where some scouts have him graded as high as the fifth round. So that's another matchup to watch. The same here goes for the Mountain West in terms of just an amount of draftable prospects. But Boise State does have a few free agent type of cornerbacks at the top of its draft board that have keyed the conference top pass defense <clears throat> that have keyed the conference's top pass defense, Avery Williams, Jalen Walker, and Kakola Canillo. While San Jose State features a couple of receivers, Trey Walker and Bailey Gaither, who account for over half of the Spartans receiving. Walker's a smaller slot type of receiver, good yard after catch ability and can make some big plays. Whereas Gaither, more of a possession receiver, even though he's actually averaging four more yards per catch than his teammate Walker this season. So while the draftable players are limited in this one and quite possibly could be none, each team's top players tend to match up against each other. And San Jose State undefeated this year, which is great to see, especially they they played a lot of their home games on the road recently because of COVID restrictions in Northern California. Uh, you mentioned Walker, you mentioned Gaither. Gaither was a guy who actually was graded by scouts last year as a uh, priority free agent, but he was granted another year of eligibility by the NC2A, came back. It's worked out really well uh, for him. Uh, as you said, I don't think he's going to get drafted, but he's going to be a, uh, a solid priority free agent. Same thing with Walker. Both of these guys could uh, also see action as return specialists, as uh, punt returners. Walker more of a kick returner go up against that real good uh, secondary uh, of, of Boise State. Also keep an eye on Derek Deese Jr., the tight end from, uh, from San Jose State. Very athletic, a terrific pass catcher, real thick build, guy that consistently comes away with a difficult reception, and someone who was not even mentioned by scouts coming into the year, but has really developed his game, and I think right now has gone from unmentionable in the scouting community to someone that's a priority free agent. Now, the Pac-12 title game no longer features Washington against USC, as mentioned earlier, with Oregon taking the Huskies' place. And many of the Ducks' top prospects didn't play this season, including cornerback Thomas Graham, fellow cornerback Demode Lenore, did opt back in after he initially opted out. He's going to see a lot of USC wide receivers, Amon Ross St. Brown and Tyler Bonds. The top draft matchup in this game probably does end up in the secondary, even without Graham. Both of those USC receivers are enjoying solid seasons. St. Brown has six touchdowns over the past two weeks. Vaughn's has scored in three straight. The top remaining Ducks prospect outside of Lennar is probably running back CJ Verdell, although he's taken a backseat to Troy Dye the past two weeks as he's kind of battled some injuries. Tony, 
What are you watching for in this matchup? Now, obviously, the top uh, USC receiver, if you watch this year, is Drake London, the uh, the outstanding sophomore who's drawing, I believe, legitimate comparisons to Mike Evans, which is why uh, the other two guys, the other two guys have watched their production kind of drop off. Keep an eye on USC left tackle Elijah Vera Tucker, who projects to guard at the next level. Well-liked in the scouting community. When I say well-liked, I'm talking top 60. He's had a real good year at left tackle. Some people believe he can play left tackle at the next level, but he's only about six foot two. Uh, I'm sure they're going to have to throw a lot of blitzes at Oregon to, to break up the momentum of the USC Trojan offense. See how Vera Tucker handles them. Now to wrap it all up here, we head down south where Alabama faces Florida in the SEC title game. Kyle Pitts surely going to play in this one, obviously after Florida's loss. It's going to be fun to watch him go up against Dylan Moses, two potential first-round picks next April. Kadarius Toney is going to be challenged when he lines up outside against Patrick Sertan II and Josh Job, And obviously Kyle Trask just going to be challenged by this tied defense as a whole, lead the SEC in points allowed. On the other side of the ball, Heisman favorite Mac Jones, the favorite to be the runner-up for the Heisman, Devontae Smith, and running back Najee Harris are the skill players to watch. Left tackle Alex Leatherwood is a guy that could threaten to be taken in round one as well. Tons of NFL talent on the field in this one, but obviously the best matchups are going to come when Florida has the ball. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the question is, uh, can, Al, uh, can Florida defense hold the Alabama offense to under 50 points? Because that's how good the Alabama offense is. As you mentioned, Kyle Trask has got a lot to prove. He's going to be going up against a terrific uh, secondary uh, it, with the Alabama Crimson Tide. They also got a good defensive line. From what I'm hearing, Christian Barmore is very likely to enter the draft. Guy gets a lot of pressure on the inside because Alabama plays a, a 3-4. So they're off their defensive alignment up front. They do get sacks. They do get pressure, but they also occupy the gaps. I think the loss by Florida last week to LSU takes a bit of luster off this game. And that's it for the 166th episode of the Draft Analyst presented by the Believe Sports Podcast Network. Do you believe? If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe on any of the major podcast platforms and leave us a rating and a review. And feel free to ask us questions on Twitter that we'd be happy to answer on the show. We'll be back next week to go over what we saw during conference championship week. But until then, on behalf of Tony Pauline, I'm Chris Tripodi. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.